Welcome to the host, Eucharistic and Hipster Talk, with your host, the Reverend Deacon Maverick, Victor Whitlow, and Caleb J. Millens. On the host, Eucharistic and Hipster Talk, we come to speak about various issues as it relates to Orthodox Anglo-Catholic theology, as well as various other things, including social issues, scientific issues, philosophical issues, and also various issues as it relates to the hipster scene. We hope that you enjoy this episode with us today on the Eucharistic Sacrifice. Enjoy! Hey, hey Deacon Maverick. Yo, Caleb. How's it going? It's going wonderful, my friend. And yourself? Um, it is... Uh, yeah, I, I guess it's okay. I just had a bit of a strange... A strange evening, you know, when you're dreaming the weirdest stuff imaginable. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it usually happens um, when I'm, I don't know why, but dreams like this happen when I go to bed late or when I am really peaceful. I don't know why. Um, but yeah, um, it was great. Good. So, <laughs> It just, yeah. I don't know, I don't know what kind of an imagination I have because it was weird. Hmm. You don't have any dreams about Cthulhu or anything, right? No. <laughs> um, I actually, um, I've been dreaming a lot about home. Yeah. Um, I've been dreaming about, yes, and some of the things I don't even remember, um, yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of people are are dreaming about that, both literally and figuratively, with you know the lockdown and everything. But uh, mm-hmm. in my end of the world, things are starting to get a little bit better, and um, I've actually started back to work part time. Um, um, well, I'm, I'm full time working. I'm being paid for full forty hour salary, but um, I actually go back to work at my office twice a week, which helps to do a little, uh, have some semblance of normalcy, which has been good for me because I work better at my office than I do at my home. But uh, mm-hmm. movie theaters are back open. The grocery stores and department stores are back open, or at least they're given the option to reopen. So it seems there is some sense of normalcy returning and that we've kind of got the summer to recover in my hometown. I know families are starting to visit each other for the first time in a long time. And, uh, my family tomorrow actually is getting together on Mother's Day. Um, we're going to have kind of a little uh, shindig. We're going to exchange presents to the mothers, and then we're going to have a little cookout and have some fajitas, yum, good stuff. Um, so things are looking that's a pretty, little bit brighter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, I mean, we we were speaking about you know what to get was your mother. Yeah. Um, and yeah. you didn't know what to get. So I, I finally figured that out. And probably by the time this episode gets released, it'll be okay for my mom to find out. But um, I, I, my mom actually collects um, little black bears, like little black bear figurines. And yeah. like, they, they look so cute. They, now they're obvious. They look like they're made of carved wood, but they're obviously not made of carved wood when you expect them. She has a large collection of them all over the house, and so I was like, you know what? My mom always likes these kind of bears, so I went on Amazon and poked around, and I found one that was a looks like a mama bear holding a baby while sitting in a rocking chair, and I was like, that might be cool because she doesn't have one that looks like a very grandmotherly bear, and this one did so. I got her another one of those for her collection, and I'm sure she'll love that. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you know, lockdown is kind of difficult for me because I'm not sure if the restrictions on Amazon has changed, but, um, you know, I've been scanning through things that I want from Amazon just to prepare myself for the priesthood Mm -hmm. and things like that, but you know, COVID-19 kind of, yeah, destroyed my chances of trying to prepare for that. So I'm just using Amazon Kindle. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what I'm doing. But 
yeah, I've, I, I mean, I read two huge books in a short amount of time. So yeah. maybe we should tell the readers or our listeners, what are we reading right now? What are you reading right now, Deacon Maverick? Um, I am actually uh, finish, going to finish. Um, it's actually a dev- book. Uh, it's a devotional. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called uh, The Heart of the Desert. That's right. Um, yeah, you were telling me about that. Yeah, it's, it's uh, the author, I think, is Benedicta Ward. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really about... Hmm? Is, he the, is he also the translator for the Desert Fathers works in the book? Um, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm not sure. It's, but the, the book has been really challenging at times um, because I've been examining my heart, you know, Mm-hmm. And so as much as I've been reading theology and watching documentaries, um, I think monastic spirituality has really had a profound impact on my, uh, my own spirituality. Mm. Yeah. So very good. I just finished, um, orthodox dogmatic theology. I bet that was a heavy orthodox read. Dogmatic. Yeah, that was about that. That was a really big book. Um, who, who wrote that book again? Um, Father Polomazansky. Um, as far as I know, he's a Russian Orthodox. That sounds uh, like a Russian a Orthodox name. <laughs> yep. Um, and and I I actually got uh, and I mean you are the reason that I got this and maybe I'll try to read it today. H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's uh, entire collection on Kindle. So you you will absolutely love that. I know you and I are both fans of horror, but to me, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft is a an intelligent thinking guy's horror, a very philosophical uh, type of horror, as well as the uh, the whole horror that gets you to question the existence of yourself. So very uh, you know crisis driven kind of stuff, identity crisis kind of horror. So it's it's really, really good in that regard. Um, I've been reading two things. Um, so I, tip, I tend to read something for pure entertainment and then something for, you know, in, uh, enhancing my spiritual life. Um, so for enhancing my spiritual life, I've been reading N.T. Wright's um, Justification, God's Plan and Paul's Vision. Um, <laughs> I, uh, very good book. Yeah. I mean, it, it's very good. One of the things I love about Bishop N.T. Wright is the fact that he almost writes in the same voice and style as C.S. Lewis. And I kind of sense that as he writes that he got a lot of his writing cues from C.S. Lewis, which I really, really appreciate. Um, and the one thing I like about this book, um, I, well, I mean, first of all, I've had people tell me, Oh, don't, read that book or don't don't spend your hard earned money on that book you know and that's such a probably yeah. reformed people definitely reformed people um, although i've had a few lutherans who never really um discourage me from reading the book but they say that's a bit iffy in some places with with what they would say but reformed people yeah it's heresy but um but uh, no i think it's actually an excellent book so far i'm about um i'm about 100 pages into it roughly and I, I love the fact that it's a direct response to John Piper's uh, own work. Um, I know that, that John Piper and N.T. Wright had quite a bit of headbutting over the issue of justification. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that N.T. Wright's arguments are very well constructed in the book in that, like, you know, he points out, for example, that, uh, you know, the that John Piper's arguments are kind of built on this idea that you're going to confuse common folk or regular folk as the word that, that uh, John Piper uses in that. If you're not drawing your theology from reformational 16th century theology, you're doing it wrong and no amount of archeology span or studying of Hebrew languages or studying first century Judaism is going to make the Bible clearer. And I think that's, I'm sorry, but I find that utterly absurd. And I think that, that N.T. Wright both shows himself to be a great theologian and a great scholar mm-hmm. of history when he writes. This is what I love about his theological points is that he roots his theology in history. 
which is amazing, just amazing. Um, and for entertainment-wise, uh, I've been reading my collection, my newly acquired collection of Conan the Barbarian uh, by uh, Marvel Comics. Um, there is a local gaming store here that sells everything from retro old school uh, games to fake action figures and comic books. And one of my buddies happened to be in there like, dude, I've got to show you something. And he showed me in the back, there was this box full of comics that were individually wrapped comics that were from the seventies and they're all Conan the Barbarian. And just full disclosure, I'm a big fan of fantasy, really big fan of Robert E. Howard and Conan the Barbarian. Um, I would dare say that Conan is probably my favorite uh, and, the, and the whole uh, Hyboria uh, universe, if you want to call it that, um, is probably my favorite genre of fantasy. So just being able to pick those up, and I mean, just to flip through them. I mean, they were kept in really good condition, whoever owned these before. And the art is fantastic, extremely retro. Um, and But what I, I think what is the most surprising thing is that these comic books were recommended for boys ages like 10 to, to 12, you know? And and the, that is fun. Oh yeah, and there is some seriously adult content in these comic books. Now, I will say they do keep it PG thirteen, but I mean, for example, it openly talks about Conan as a king having a harem <laughs> with like multiple wives and um, <laughs> about you know mm -hmm. tests of virginity and his thirteen year old son and one. Yeah, and, okay. yeah, and there's a we should. We should totally expose our youth to that. Oh, I, I, I actually, but before I get to that, but there's another scene in there where his 13-year-old son has just participated in his first battle, like killed men in battle. And he's celebrating at this party and he follows this dancing girl into the back room to do God knows what. And uh, you get to kind of hear his thoughts on the way over there. And again, it's PG-13, but still the, yeah. the fact that I'm like, wow, they... They really recommended this for ten to twelve year olds, but uh, I, I do. I think you're right, Deacon Maverick. I think I think our boys that in the last you know decade or so that society has really tried to make our our boys that are growing into men to be really soft and to be really effeminate. And I think that that Conan the Barbarian is just the perfect remedy for that. I'm like, I yeah, I want my boys to be exposed to that. I've I've got mixed feelings about some of the content. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that we are. What is this? Um, I just picked up something from the floor. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I, I was I was on Netflix the other day, and what was disturbing to me was the amount of the amount of just bad blasphemous yeah uh nihilistic kind of cartoon yeah um and i mean i'm not even talking about rick and morty um i'm talking about the other stuff i'm thinking about just these i, I can't even remember the names but you would watch it for mm -hmm. a few minutes and you would be like this is a cartoon mm -hmm. and um yeah i mean you i mean you could say some of these cartoons are on Adult Swim, but mm -hmm. um, not all of them are. Some of them are yeah. really advertised as if though they're for kids. And I mean, one cartoon that I particularly enjoyed, however, I'm a bit skeptical that it's being watched by kids is Adventure Time. Yeah, it, yeah um, it's a fun cartoon, but there is... There's some dark content in that cartoon. Um, it reminds it reminds me a little bit of a cartoon I used to watch as a kid called Ren and Stimpy that used to come on Nickelodeon. Um, and for those of you who don't know what that yeah. is, for those of you who aren't 90s kids, um, Ren and Stimpy was a cartoon about a dog named Ren, who, a chihuahua named Ren, and a cat named Stimpy who lived together. And uh, they were supposedly best friends, roommates, something like that. And the cartoon was insanely gross. I mean, everything from bathroom humor to humor involving vomit, poop, and um, 
just boogers, things like that. I mean, to any 90s teenage boy, it was hilarious. But there was some dark moments in there. (laughs) So, I mean, yeah. You know, I... I don't actually remember this. Back in South Africa, we had um, we had Nickelodeon too, yeah. and KTV, and um, KTV was sort of like a offshoot of Nickelodeon. Mm-hmm. But Nickelodeon, uh, we had a similar cartoon. You probably know this, Cat Dog. Cat Dog, yeah, that was a that was another good yeah. one. I loved Cat Dog. Yeah, cat dog. Yeah, it had sort of the same vibe as as Ren and, a little like cat Ren and Stimpy, but it was a little more tame than Ren and Stimpy. Uh, another good one was Rocco's Modern Life. That was another great Nickelodeon show. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, but yeah, I mean, we could speak about the yeah. Well, well um, we may have to do another time. whole episode on nerddom and, yeah. and nostalgia. But uh, yeah. let's introduce our topic. You know, shall we? I think. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I, I think, at least with the nature of this topic, we could actually do another episode on this because I feel as though this could get rather long. Yeah, so, we may need to revisit this topic and maybe come back to it later on. Yeah. But we'll get the basics down for our readers or our listeners here. Yeah. I keep want to say readers for some reason, but go ahead and introduce our topic for tonight, Deacon Maverick. Okay, so we're going to be speaking today, so today we're going to be speaking about um, the Eucharistic sacrifice. Yeah. And so, at least tackling from a Anglo-Orthodox, Anglo-Catholic perspective, what is the Eucharist and is it a sacrifice? I think for many Protestants, and that includes Lutherans and Reformed types, uh, there's a bit of a, not, not a skepticism, but an opposition to the idea that the sacrifice, um, that there's a sacrifice in the Mass. And so we say that the Eucharist is a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. It is a sacrifice and it, it, it gives us salvation. And so, you know, how can we have this idea? Uh, because most, most Protestants, they just scandalized, mm-hmm. uh, you know, about the idea uh, of having a communion service that is actually a sacrifice. So, yeah, that's what we are going to be speaking about. So, yeah, yeah, I think it's 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 a really heavy question. It is because um, even even amongst our own uh, circles of, of Anglicans. Um, you have some Anglicans who would be totally against this idea as well. Um, they, these would be the Anglicans on the more reformed side of things, and perhaps some of the old high churchmen maybe, but mostly not for them, I don't think. Um, and I think this is one of those doctrines, whether you agree with it or not, it's one of those doctrines that tends to get very, very, very misrepresented by a lot of Protestant talking heads, prominent Protestant talking heads, as a matter of fact. Um, One of the ones, I'll go ahead and name a person here because he's openly talked about it, um, would be James White, Dr. James White. Ding, 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 Um, ding. You don't have to really look far to find uh, content with Dr. James White actually trying to refute the sacrifice of the mass. He's done, most of his debates have been against Roman Catholics and probably the second most have been Muslims. But um, he's debated Roman Catholicism for years. And uh, this is one of those things, every time I, I see a Protestant approach the doctrine of the sacrifice of the mass, like many Catholic doctrines, Catholic and Orthodox doctrines, they tend to write it out, oh, that's too Roman Catholic, or that's Papist, or something like that. But I think when one actually studies what is meant by the sacrifice of the Mass, um, this caricature that a lot of Protestants build, and I'll just go ahead and kind of line out what that caricature is, is they'll say things like, Jesus was only sacrificed once, and the Roman Catholics in their masses, and the Orthodox as well, sacrifice Christ again and again and again during the Mass in a bloodless sacrifice, and holding Christ in contempt. They usually are referencing the book of Hebrews, 
in that regard. But I think this is a total caricature of what the doctrine of the sacrifice of the mass is. And I think it's a very bad representation. Another one that, I mean, just to kind of give you a similar example, we won't get into this one, but I, though I totally disagree with this doctrine, uh, I think papal infallibility actually gets misrepresented a lot by Protestants as well. Um, but this one, the sacrifice of the mass, I believe, is a totally Catholic and Orthodox doctrine that Protestants really should not fear at all. Um, and I think once a Protestant really understands this, that it should be fully accepted. Um, so that's sort of the, the opener there. <laughs> <clears throat> you there? Oh, go ahead. Hey. Oh, go ahead. You cut out there for yeah. a second. <laughs> yeah, I I was actually gonna uh, read some quotes. Sure. So um, that that are actually can you still uh -huh. hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. <laughs> so, okay, yeah. Um, it's just this app can sometimes get a bit. Sure, no problem. Can get a bit bad. So the sacrifice of the mass is obviously attacked, and people claim that this is a novel doctrine. This is not the doctrine of the Church Catholic. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I find interesting is that Presbyterians and Dutch Reformed kind, they would scream bloody murder and say, no, this is not, you know, this is, this goes against the gospel. I want to read... Um, um, something from AD 80. Mm. And this is from Pope Clement the First. Not that kind of Pope. Letter to know. the <laughs> Yeah, le letter to the Corinthians 44, mm -hmm. uh, verses 4 to 5. Deacon Maverick, you there? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, did, did, did yeah, I the air out? went silent for about uh, ten seconds. You, you might want to start over again. I'm sorry. I heard I heard you say, "Here's the letter," and then after okay. that, go ahead. Okay. Can you still hear me? Yeah. Let's try yeah. this again. Um, our sin will not be small if we eject from the episcopate those who blamelessly and holily have offered its sacrifices. Blessed are those presbyters who have already finished their course and who have obtained a fruitful and perfect release. Mm. So, yep, and that's AD 80. So, wow. that's pretty early. Yeah. And I mean, so, so, you know, there's an idea that priests or presbyters were offering sacrifices. And so, this idea that somehow a sacrifice is old covenant. And we don't have any sacrifices now also calls into question the fact that Paul even says we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And so if we don't have sacrifices in the New Testament, we're going to have to ask ourselves really long and hard. Why did Paul say we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice? It seems like a sacrifice is still a very important part of Christian piety and worship. Right. And, and I think that's very, very hard for, for Christians to understand, at least Protestant Christians. And it's also very important for us to point out here that in a Catholic Orthodox service, um, depend, you know, from the apostolic churches, when we uh, have our service, our mass, everything revolves around that sacrifice of the mass. Um, it cannot be a full Christian service without it. Um, we don't find the locus of spirituality in the service, in the preaching of the word, or in anything, in the singing of songs. They all culminate, everything in the servant culminates um, in the sacrifice of the mass, the Eucharistic sacrifice. Mm -hmm. um, but... I, I, I want to read one more quote, and hopefully I don't cut out oh, here. Um, so this is from uh, Ignatius of Antioch. Make certain, therefore, 
that you all observe one common Eucharist, for there is but one body of our Lord Jesus Christ, and but one cup of union with his blood, and one single altar of sacrifice, even as there is also but one bishop with his clergy and my own fellow servitors, the deacons, this will ensure that all your doings are in full accord with the will of mm -hmm. God. And that is the letter to the Philadelphians 4 AD uh, 110. Yes, and to, and to put this into perspective for our listeners, um, as you know, for those of you who've listened to our show long enough, we quote a lot of the church fathers. Just to put this in perspective for those of you who are just beginning to look into the church fathers or aren't that familiar with them, Ignatius of Antioch is the disciple of St. Peter. He is one of two people that St. Peter trained to be bishops, one being St. Ignatius of Antioch and the other one being uh, Clement of Rome. And Clement of Rome actually gets a mention uh, in one of Paul's epistles in the book of Philippians. Um, so these are people who knew the apostles. The, early, the difference between the early church fathers and the post-Nicene fathers is that the post-Nicene fathers lived about third and fourth century, whereas the, or, or second and third century, I think. And then the early church fathers are those who lived less than a hundred years or just over a hundred years after the last apostle died. So the, so many of these people we quote, yeah. they knew people like Peter. They were trained and discipled by Peter and other apostles who knew Jesus Christ. Another uh, prominent example is Polycarp, who was St. John the B Beloved's uh, disciple. So these are people who are in extremely close connection to the teachings of the apostles, because as we've said in other podcasts, there was not an official New Testament canon for almost 130 years. So most everything was learned either by letters that were sent by the apostles or were learned directly from the apostles and passed on through word of mouth. This is why the church fathers are so important. And uh, it's important to point out that um, not everything in the church fathers is considered part of our tradition. So we have what we call the consensus mm -hmm. patrium. What is the consensus of what the fathers is saying? When there is a consensus on an issue, we would say that that is something that they've received from holy tradition. So one example is all of the fathers speak of a divine Jesus, of Jesus Christ being fully God. That is part of the consensus patrium. Mm -hmm. Another teaching, baptism saves. This is the universal teaching of the church fathers. One baptism for the forgiveness mm -hmm. of sin. And so it is, since, it's, since it agrees with all of the fathers, the fathers all agree with it. We say that's part of the consensus patrium. The moment something is new or novel, or it only appears in one or two fathers, we prob probably have a good warrant to say that that's probably not part of the consensus patrium. Um, because some of the fathers would maybe even believe in something like universalism or... Maybe they believe that there's this cookie giant <laughs> that is rendered present outside of the mass. There's, there's no father like that, just to be, to be clear. Um, but they might say, well, we've, we have seen this cookie giant released in the spirit. And if one father is only saying that, it's probably you know, fair to say, well, that's not part of the apostolic oh. department. Oh. And we believe that. Oh, Maverick, don't yeah. don't give the charismatics any ideas about seeing a cookie giant, because I guarantee Nar will make something for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I just had to. Um, so, uh, it, it's okay. Something that's also very important is we also accept in the authorities of the authority of the seven ecumenical councils and. Something is considered an ecumenical council because of its universal representation or rather universal um, mm -hmm. reception. So the fact that it was universally received by the undivided church gives its authority. And so the seven ecumenical councils and the creeds that come with it 
like the symbol of faith, i.e. the Nicene mm. Creed. Uh, those things begin to lay down the foundation of what Orthodox, Catholic, and proper Christian teaching is for us. And the Bible is a part of that. It is not distinct from that. Um, we don't believe that you can read the Bible or receive the Bible without understanding what the tradition of the church is. And this is something the fathers even mentioned. They, they realized that quoting scriptures wasn't enough. Otherwise, Arius could have won. Yes. Um, many of the other heretics of the church could have won. But the reason they did not win is because they did not have with them the apostolic witness um, coming down in the tradition Absolutely. of the church. And so that's very, very important to outline. But I'm probably just going to read one, um, one more quote because it's something in this quote that will probably cause us to talk more deeper about, you know, how then we can have a Eucharistic sacrifice. So if I do fade into the background, you're going to have to tell me. And then maybe... Um, I can give the quote to you, and then maybe sure. you can read it. Um, so this is from Serapion. You're there. Am I, am I still there? Okay. Except therewith our hallowing, our hallowing too, as we say, holy, 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 Lord Sabaoth, heaven and earth is full of your glory. Heaven is full, and full is the earth with your magnificent glory. Lord of virtues, full also is the sacrifice with your strength and your communion. For to you we offer this living sacrifice, this O bloody oblation, prayer of the Eucharistic sacrifice, 13, verse 12 to 16, and that's from AD 350. Um, that's very, very early. Um, and so something that's very, very important to point out here is they speak of the Mass as an unbloody oblation. You will also hear... In the divine liturgies um, of the East, they speak about a bloodless sacrifice. And so how can you have a bloodless sacrifice? How can you have an unbloody oblation? Now, that is actually a lot more nuanced than people like James White mm -hmm. tend to make it. So there is the, the teaching that we, probably, that we properly believe that Jesus Christ died once. He didn't die many times. He didn't die in this constant repetition. But you need to understand that many of the fathers knew that too. We all know Christ is only sacrificed once. So the question is, how can Christ be the victim on the altar, the altar of sacrifice, as Ignatius put it? How can we have that? How can we have Christ... Um, being rendered presence by the present by the words of consecration uh, upon you know you know the priest invoking by the Holy Spirit Christ presence on the altar. How can we have that? And so I think it's very important to point to this distinction that we have in the apostolic communions about chronological time and Kairos time. Chronological time is linear time, the, the kind of time we're experiencing right now and the kind of time in which That's we are recording. Um, yeah, we, we, but then we need to understand that there's another kind of time. It, the, the Greek doesn't only use the word chronos, it uses the term kairos, and kairos is imminent time, um, and it can often refer to eternity, um, time without reference to past, present, or future, um, and so it's not linear time, and this is what we believe happens when we are in the Mass. The Mass does not take place in linear time. Um, when Christ is rendered present on the offer, we believe that it is somewhat heaven on earth. We are entering into eternity, and so Christ is offered the once-for-all sacrifice and when you read the Book of Common Prayer and the Missals, you will see that they make this clear, that there's only one sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice. And the Greek word that's used there in Hebrew is aphapax. It's once-for-all, once-for-all time. Well, yes, this is actually an agreement with our teaching, 
because we are saying that it is an ifapax, an eternal sacrifice. It's not to be offered again and again. And so this is something that needs to be pointed out. I think also something that needs to be pointed out here is that Christ is not shedding his blood again. Mm-hmm. This is very important. It's true that we receive the blood uh, of Christ in the Eucharist, but it's not true that Christ's blood is being shed again because the blood has only been shed once. There was only need for it to be shed once. But since it was shed eternally in an eternal sense, we can now go into the eternities to partake of that one sacrifice. Um, and, and, and something that, that's very, very cool about this is that this is what we mean when we say the bloodless sacrifice. Christ is not becoming the victim again. Christ has already been the victim, but that victim is now glorified mm-hmm. in the heavenlies. But through a mystery of faith, we can partake of that one sacrifice for all time, while at the same time, the priest, and in fact, not just the priest, because the priest, the priest is firstly in persona, uh, in persona Christi, and maybe Caleb can, can uh, take over, but I'm just going to explain two, uh, two more things, and then Caleb can, can jump in on you to make sure that everyone understands. This is the great thing about having another guy on, but the priest is in persona Christi, and that means that he's in the person of Christ. Um, and we actually believe that the priest is cleansed, as if it were. The priest is, sins are not held against him. And so he is clear for that moment while he offers the Mass. He's doing it in the person of Christ. And at the same time, the priest is also in persona ecclesia. The priest also represents the entire church. Um, and so if, if you could say this, Christ is basically, um, Christ's ministry is continuing through the person of the priest. And the priest is simply leading the prayer. He's leading the Eucharistic sacrifice. We then receive the body and blood of Christ, offer ourselves up with the cup of salvation and, you know, the bread of eternal life. We offer those two things back unto God with ourselves. Um, and so that's very, very important, um, is that we are actually becoming one with that sacrifice. We now give a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving as we again offer back to God Christ. And this is important because in the Mass, Christ is sacrificed. And because it is Christ who is being offered to God, it is a prayer that is always answered. The Mass is the highest form of prayer because there's nothing greater that we can appeal to but the blood and body of Jesus. So, Amen to that. And... Yes, and the the other thing I wanted to point out about this the sacrifice of the mass is that yes, it is you know what we would consider an unbloody oblation, and it's not that we are saying Jesus, we need you to suffer again, you know, so that we can partake of you. No, the thing, as Deacon Maverick rightly pointed out, is Jesus is glorified. He still has a human body right now and is glorified. That means everything that is human about us is human about him, except his. he has achieved full theosis with God. That's why he's called the firstborn of the dead in the Bible. And the, the thing is, when we uh, participate in the Mass, now in the Anglo-Catholic Mass, we say whenever we approach the table, the prayer of humble access, and one of the lines we say in this prayer is that when we when we plead to God so that we may uh, eat uh, the flesh of his dear son and drink his blood, it says that our bodies may be made whole by his body and that our uh, and that our souls may be washed through his most precious blood. That's because we are not just participating we're not participating in the, the broken, dead body of Christ. We are participating in the living and breathing and alive forevermore eternal body 
of Jesus Christ because he is, is fully human. Now, here's yeah. the crazy thing. We think in the West, because this is a prevailing thought, that to be less human is to be more spiritual, and nothing could be further from the truth. That's a Gnostic idea. But the thing is that when uh, that Jesus is more human, so to speak, than we are, he has a he has accomplished oh, what our first parents should have accomplished in the garden. And because he has done this, when we participate in the life of the church, his life becomes our life, his death becomes our death, his resurrection becomes our resurrection. And one of the ways and the most central way that we participate in this life and in his body and blood is by partaking of the sacrament of the Eucharist. And when we partake of his living body and living blood, instead of us digesting that and it becoming part of our body, we eat that and he and drink that and it become we become part of his mystical body. That is the power of it. And and so when when we approach the yeah. the the sacrifice of the mass. The difference, we, we need to understand what the Hebrew idea of a memorial is. And as Deacon Maverick pointed out, the, uh, the Kairos time is really important here. And this is where Ulrich Zwingli really messed up. Because when we say, the, when we mention the word memorial and Eucharist together, that's a dirty word for apostolic communions. But when understood in its proper context, the memorial... Uh, in in the historic context is actually correct. And what I mean by that is that when the Hebrews, for example, observed the Paschal meal, they believed at that time that when they observed the Passover, that they were participating in this timeless event, that, that, that in a way they were transported in their liturgical practice to that time in Egypt when they ate the original Passover lamb and the angel of death passed over them and struck down the firstborn of Egypt. So in other words, even though they weren't physically there when the original event happened, their ancestors were, when they celebrated the Eucharist for time immemorial until God has fulfilled the old covenant, they believed that they were going back to that time and participating as if they were there. And that's the same thing we have when we approach the Eucharist, because at the end of the day, the Christian faith is a Jewish faith. Our faith is rooted in Old Testament Hebrew religion. And this is why it's so important to realize that when we participate in the Eucharist, we are receiving the same forgiveness and same sacrifice that Christ made at that one point in time. We are not crucifying Christ again, and rather the Lord is transporting us in the spirit back to that time when Christ was crucified so that we may receive what it was he gave to everyone who was around him at that time. That's the beauty of this, and this sounds very mystical, but surprisingly, Christianity is a mystical religion. It's an Eastern religion. And this is not a. This is, may sound very new and strange to you, but this was the norm of Christianity for a very long time. Um, and one of the things I think I would like to to read for our viewers, our listeners, is that uh, I have read a book that a, my priest recommended to me. Actually, I have his copy of his book right in front of me by uh, by Scott Hahn. Um, the book is called "A Father Who Keeps His Promises." Now, Scott Hahn is a Roman Catholic. He's formerly a Presbyterian, and uh, he wrote this book to, in sort of an indirect uh, refutation of dispensationalism, but it also is a very Catholic understanding of covenant theology, and you really see his Presbyterianism come through here, but it's, but it's, it's a very good way of framing it. He had this whole chapter in the book called It Is Finished in the book, and one of the things he points out, I'm going to give you a little bit of context so we don't have to read 10 pages, is that as what he notices as he was studying the crucifixion in the Eucharist is that when Christ is in the upper room, 
he, you know, he uh, celebrates the Passover Seder with his 12 apostles. And at the one point, he consecrates the elements, the bread and the wine. Well, the one thing we have to understand is that this was a Paschal meal. And during this time in the Paschal meal, there were actually four cups of wine that were usually drank in a Paschal meal. And the first one uh, was drank uh, right after receiving the bitter herbs. And this would be followed by a psalm, uh, an assigned liturgical psalm. And then there would be a, uh, a, a second, the, the Passover lamb would be served and there'd be a second cup of wine drank. And then there would be another psalm sing. And then after that, there would be a third cup of wine, which was called the cup of blessing. And this is the one that Paul actually identifies in his letter to the Corinthians as being the Eucharistic cup. Because he says, is not the cup we bless participation in the, body of Clyde, in, the, in the blood of Christ and the cup of blessing? This cup of blessing is the third one that Christ would have passed around when he said, take and drink, this is my blood. And you notice that in, in the Gospels, right after this, Jesus says, that I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it again in my kingdom anew. So he skips the fourth cup of wine, which would have been called the cup of consummation, which ends the Paschal celebration and the Paschal meal. But he skips this, and this would have been very obvious to, uh, to the apostles. And you, you know this is, the, this is purposeful because right after they drink cup of blessing, they sing the uh, the hymn, and you know, it says the Bible, the, the gospel says, and they sang a hymn, and they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, here's the thing. People have, have really struggled to find out what that cup is, and many people, especially Protestants, um, have said, oh, the cup is the one he said, you know, take this cup away from me, and it's the cup of God's wrath. Well, the problem is, is that penal substitution is really appears nowhere in the early church fathers, and really the earliest semblance we get of it is from Anselm, and really this, this idea of Christ drinking the cup of the wrath of God um, is really connected with uh, penal substitution. There is certainly the image of the cup of wrath in the Old Testament, but this is not the cup that Jesus is speaking of. He's actually speaking of the consummation cup, Scott Hahn points out in his book, and the thing is, we know this, we can know this because here's the clue. As Jesus is going up to Golgotha, the Roman soldiers offer him wine mixed with gall, and gall is basically an intoxicant, a very strong intoxicant, and it was a way of, of numbing the pain, but Jesus refuses to drink it. It's, and it's not only that he's refusing to not experience pain, but he's, it wasn't time for him to drink of the fourth cup. And you notice that on the cross, as he's nearly dead, Jesus says, I thirst. And a Roman soldier offers him a, a, a sour wine, which is wine that has gone bad, um, on a hyssop branch. And Jesus drinks it. And right after this, he says, it is finished. And so many people do not understand what that means. It does not mean that I'm done with the sacrifice. I can die now. That's what a lot of people think it means. But he's actually saying the Paschal mystery, the Paschal Seder is over. I've drank the cup of consummation. That is what that fourth cup was that he drank on the cross, what the, the wine that was offered to him. And now, why is this so important to the sacrifice of the Mass? Well, because when he drinks that, he's entering into the kingdom of God while on the cross right before he dies. And this is what's so fascinating about this, is that Scott Hahn realized the connection here. He says in his book that Paul confirmed this realistic outlook on the Eucharist later in the same epistle. He says, quote, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not participation, communion, koinonia, in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not participation, again, koinonia, in the blood of Christ? 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Such language reflects a solid belief in the real presence in the Eucharist. This is why Paul warned his fellow believers, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks condemnation, judgment upon himself. Now, what's interesting is at the time, uh, Scott Hahn was not Catholic. 
and he was a, a Presbyterian professor at a Presbyterian seminary. And he said when he shares his findings is where I find is the most interesting, because here's what he said happened. He said it wasn't long, and of course he shares all this about, you know, participating in the blood of Christ and the, the uh, you know, sort of participating in the same sacrifice, you know, with tearing back the uh, curtain of time and everything. He said, this is what he says about when he shares this with his class. He said, it wasn't long before I presented these discoveries to my students and parishioners. One thing I was besieged, uh, one evening I was besieged with questions from one particular seminary student taking my graduate course on the Gospel of John. A former Catholic, Bob seemed to get very animated when I explained the close connection between the Eucharist and the Passover on the one hand and Christ's crucifixion on the other. He then posed a very loud and loaded question. So, Professor, said my student, uh, so, Professor Hahn, what are you saying? Is the Eucharist a sacrifice or not? To be frank, Bob, says Scott Hahn, I haven't had the time to think through all the implications, but it certainly seems to follow, doesn't it? Without, without even knowing it, Bob had started a train of thought going in my brain that I wasn't able or willing to stop. Before long, the entire seminar was drawn into this discussion. The, in fact, it went on for another hour and a half, long past the end of the class. I still recall the conclusions we reached that night. First, the Synoptic Gospels clearly depict Jesus instituting the Eucharist in the context of the Jewish Passover. Second, the Jewish Passover was the covenant sacrifice that Jesus meant to fulfill of his own self-offering. And third, that the Passover sacrifice should not be separated from Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. Jesus didn't finish the Passover until Calvary, where he fulfilled it. Fourthly, the Eucharist is also inseparable, inseparably united to Christ's death. For Calvary began with the Eucharist, while the Eucharist ended with Calvary. In fact, they are one in the same sacrifice. Bob stopped me on the way out of the seminar room that night and said, Do you realize, Professor Juan, that what you shared tonight fits perfectly with what I was taught at, in the Baltimore Catechism? I replied, Bob, this may sound a little stupid, but what's the Baltimore Catechism? I had never heard of it before. He then explained how it was the basic guide for catechizing Catholics in America since the last century. It had never occurred to him since leaving the Catholic Church years before that its teachings on the Eucharist could be explained from Scripture. Pretty powerful, I would say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is something that, that we should mention. There is still a debate about um, how exactly... You cut out Deacon Maverick. You're back. Okay, go ahead. Okay, I'm, I'm here. Um, there is something that, that, that should be mentioned mm -hmm. because I know that this might come up. Uh, there seems to be considerable debate about whether or not Jesus... Um, you know, the breaking of bread and the wine was mm -hmm. actually a, a Passover Seder, or, or at least how it's related to the Passover Seder. Because I do know between the East and the West, there is a, a debate on exactly was this, this meal mm -hmm. particularly the Passover Seder, or, you know, was it a Passover meal to begin with? And there is some debate about that. And I know um, it's just something that I want to put out there, but I don't think sure. we're going to have enough time to deal with that question. So, um, but what what I do think is clear is that the connection between Christ and our as our Passover Lamb and the meal is irrefutable. You cannot deny the connection that exists there. Um, and I think for those of us who are in apostolic communions. Um, there's more of a mystical sense of what happens in the communion. And so the communion is not needless. Uh, this is also something that uh, should be pointed out. In some Protestant communities, they go for months without partaking of the supper. And I can attest to this because mm -hmm. I, I was in a church like this. Um, the Passover, not the Passover, I mean the Eucharist, sometimes they would stop using it for three months 
and then sort of when there's something big happening, they would have it. And this always bothered me because it doesn't seem like Jesus mm -hmm. had that kind of institution in mind. It seemed like every Sunday we should be doing mm -hmm. this, or at least every time we met. And you just don't have that in, um, you know, in, in, in many Protestant yeah, and evangelical uh, circles. And so this is, a, I think, a litmus test for um, whether or not you see if people really do believe that the sacrament is necessary. Um, but I just don't think most Protestants have a rationale for actually saying that it is necessary besides Jesus said we should do it. But besides that, there isn't anything. Yeah, and, and that's the problem I see it. as well, is that you, when, when people, they dumb down the... Uh, the Eucharist to being just a memorial, then you have some churches that may only observe once a month or even once a year, which I think is very sad because I think that person is starving themselves because the thing is, is that I, you know, I had one person who was a Hebrew roots kind of guy who said to me, um, he said, why is it yeah. that, you know, for those of you who believe in a Eucharistic theology, why do you, why are you so hard against people being rebaptized and not and but not against people taking the Eucharist multiple times a day? And he said, I said, I think well it wasn't me, it was somebody else. Um, but the person replied, Well, you're only born once. You don't you know, you're only born once in life, but you have to eat constantly to maintain your life. And I'm like, that's the way to look at the baptism in the yeah. Eucharist, is that yep. baptism is your new birth, your spiritual birth into the kingdom of God. So you're only born once, but the Eucharist is your spiritual food. And if you're not taking the Eucharist um, frequently, I would say once a week is the Christian norm that has been handed down to us through tradition. You're starving yourself. So no matter where you are, whether you're in an apostolic uh, communion or not, I would recommend all of our listeners, if you're searching for a church, I mean, firstly, please look into an apostolic church, whether it be Oriental Orthodox, Old Catholic, um, or, you know, or Eastern Orthodox or Anglo-Catholic, or even, even I would say Roman Catholic, um, find you, find you, first of all, an yeah. apostolic church, but find, but, but, you know, if you do that, you'll always find a church that celebrates the Eucharist every week. Or every time the church doors are open. So you may even be able to find one that has the Eucharist yeah. every day. Um, I would say there's never any harm in taking the Eucharist uh, every day if you can. Um, but uh, definitely the Christian norm is once a week. Um, another thing I would point out to our readers is that I think the strongest evidence for the sacrifice of the Mass actually... Uh, yeah, I keep saying that. Our readers. Uh, this is going to be called Our Readers. <laughs> uh, our, one thing I would point out to our listeners is that um, yeah. I think the, the book in the New Testament that most strongly identifies the sacrifice of the Mass as being legitimate is actually the book of Hebrews. I won't read this in its entirety, but um, Scott Hahn actually points out in the same book um, that there's a lot of in language about Jesus being the high priest. And one of the things it says in Hebrews 8, 3 is that every high, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. And it also talks about Jesus uh, you know, being the once for all sacrifice. And this is why... Uh, Scott Hahn also points out the church calls the Eucharist a perpetual sacrifice. Um, uh, you know, there's the, and as Scott Hahn points out, mm -hmm. as one of his teachers says, how can you repeat that which never ends, right? And this is that Kairos time again. And, and you know, as, and, and furthermore, Scott Hahn points yeah. out that Jesus is no longer bleeding, suffering, or dying. Rather, he is enthroned in heaven with his resurrected body. And with our glorified humanity, which he is our oldest brother, high priest, and king, and offers to the Father. It is precisely in this manner that the Father beholds this perfect and perpetual offering in the living body of his Son. If Jesus' offering has ceased, there would be no basis for an ongoing priesthood, which is all apostolic communions confirmed, by the way. But Jesus' priesthood is said to be a permanent 
and to be permanent and continue forever. This is in Hebrews 7.24. Moreover, there would be no reason for an earthly altar if Jesus' offering ended. But the author of Hebrews teaches us that we do. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Hebrews 13.10. In sum, the once-for-all character of Jesus sacrifice points to the perfection and perpetuity of his self-offering. It can be represented upon our altars in the Eucharist by the power of the Holy Spirit so that through him we continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, which is, a, which is an element very prevalent in the, in the Anglo-Catholic liturgy, is that we offer a, a, a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and we also offer ourselves as living sacrifices. So there is, so there's actually, in a way, and this is not That's like you're bargaining with God, but there's actually an exchange of sacrifices that goes on. And it's that, you know, we offer God the humble elements of bread and wine, which he transforms into his body and blood. Um, that's not necessarily transubstantiation, but we could talk about that later. But the point is, he, we give him the bread and wine. He gives it back to us as his body and blood. And out of gratefulness for that gift, we offer our sacrifice of thanksgiving and ourselves bodily and, and soul to God. I think that's a beautiful picture. It's an absolutely beautiful picture. And, and something that's also very important, because this is to refute the Lutheran heresy. And yes, we do consider it heresy. In Lutheranism, there's only right. a one-way act about what God is giving. But there is a sense in which we are offering Christ's body and blood right. back to God uh, for our own sins. And so the Mass is a propitiatory sacrifice. This is outright denied uh, in Lutheranism and Reformed theology, which is why it's very, very important for us to uh, not, you know, get buddy-buddied by the Reformed and Lutheran no. community. <laughs> we believe in the same thing. No, you don't. Because we actually believe that... Um, that Christ is being sacrificed back to God, and it is for my sins. And even in the Book of Common Prayer, as much as you want to appeal to Thomas Cranmer about, you know, being reformed and stuff, it's quite clear that baptism, not baptism, right. the Eucharist offers us the forgiveness of sins. And so Christ bears it in his body, and we offer, right. um, we offer the Mass because we are in persona of the, the, the priest, is just leading all of us. And so in that Mass, we offer up to God the only thing that can ever right. bring us satisfaction with Him, um, and that is the sacrifice of the Mass. And it's very, I mean, we don't have time to do that, but maybe yeah, we can deal theories. with the atonement. I think maybe that should be um, our next atonement one, I think we should do atonement and atonement theories. Oh, and I have, a, I have, a, I have another thing probably to deal with Yes, um, Anglo Orthodoxy as a thing. Should, maybe we can, can we go ahead? Bishop. Can we go ahead and I'll, mention I'll, I'll his name get, and get mention my some bishop of his books here for everybody, or should we? Um, I think I'd, I think I'd probably okay. Um, I think I'd okay. probably uh, ask him because the situation, sure. his missional context. Um, yeah, but uh, with, yeah, we, we will we will speak to his grace. And maybe just sometime uh, that would be I kind mean, of fun. I would like to get your priest. Yeah, there. yeah, maybe uh, maybe he would like to do that. Yeah, and maybe and maybe yeah, we can actually speak maybe about just something. Ask, kind of maybe geeky. maybe just grow up. We have priest, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and maybe and planning a church in a place like where there are no other Anglican churches. That would be, be interesting. A fun one to uh, to talk about. Yep. So yeah, I think. We, we, we've, we, we've been a bit Yeah, but I think we, we need to revisit this. Maybe, maybe what we can do so, next yeah. time, Deacon Maverick, is we can make uh, the atonement theories our central, our central talking point, but we can frame that in the context of how that fits into the Eucharist and the Eucharistic sacrifice. That, because there's so many aspects oh. to the Eucharistic yeah. sacrifice that you could go into. Because there's, there's, you know, not only the atonement theories, but there's also an apocalyptic uh, and a, uh, uh, a scatological view of it as well. But you know, the other thing is, I would like to point out to our to our uh, listeners is that 
you know, when we offer Jesus back to God, we're not saying we're grabbing Jesus and saying, here, God, take him. Don't take us. No, it's that Christ has already offered himself to us 2000 years ago. And he's still offering himself to everyone right now because that is a perpetual sacrifice. And it's like us standing before God. And I, I really yeah. don't like the view of God as this mean, angry, vindictive judge always out to get you. But nonetheless, he is our judge and he's a good and righteous judge. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he would have every right to condemn us. And like whenever he says, how do you plead? We say and think of the Eucharist in this way, if you want to think of it in the courtroom sense, is God saying, well, how do you plead? And we say we're guilty, rotten sinners, God. And the only thing we have to offer you in recompense is your beloved son, Jesus Christ. And that's all we're doing. We're just claiming the blood of Jesus Christ and his broken body as our only hope and plea. And I don't see how any Christian of any tradition could disagree with that. And probably, sure. uh, like just to wrap up the, the thought, is that our view of the atonement is basically this. Mm -hmm. It is the long-suffering love of God where Christ mm -hmm. opens his arms towards us on the cross um, right. to take away the stains of sin and death. And when Christ rises again, it is actually him taking us from out of the grave and Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death. Amen. And, in and we'll, we'll definitely, I'm life. pretty sure our listeners will want to hear this as well. But uh, I think we'll definitely have to hit on the idea of, uh, you know, why you and I would not accept penal substitutionary atonement, at least that one that is taught by Reformed and Lutheran folks and why yeah. not only on a historical basis but also on a, yeah. on a theological basis why we find it just to, to be honest it, i'm not trying to hurt you know to say that anybody who holds to this is you know nasty or a heretic but i think that it is an abhorrent doctrine it it, it really makes god look like a monster and it makes Christ look like the victim of abuse. And it really does have some mm -hmm. Trinitarian problems that doesn't mesh well with the Orthodox view of the Trinity. So we'll, we'll hit on that next episode when we see us. And it, the other thing, maybe we can close out with this. And this is from cool. um, the Book of Common Prayer. Um, and this, is, this goes well with the atonement theory you were just talking about, Deacon Maverick. It says, Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. Amen. Amen. Well, Deacon Maverick, mm -hmm. my wife Amen. is waiting for me. This is sort of like our second Friday night. So I probably need to go watch um, uh, a TV show or movie with her. But it was great doing this with you well, as always. So, Yes, sir. It was great to do it with you too, Caleb. So see you all. Bye-bye, guys. Thank you Have for listening. Have a good night or day wherever bye -bye. you are. Until next time. Cheers.